0: Please stand as you are able as we read from God's word. You will be relieved, as am I, that your ability to pronounce these names has nothing to do with your salvation. (laughs) Here we go. Please read with me the words that are in bold. From Luke 3, 23 to 38. Jesus, when began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. The son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melshi, the son of Jana, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Moth, the son of Matthias, the son of Samein, the son of Josic, the son of Joda, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melshi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Almadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Matad, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maaleah, the son of Menah, the son of Matata. Oops, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Sala, the son of nashon the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez. The son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahir, the son of Sereg, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphroditex, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Wasn't that fun? (laughs) That's what we do here. We do things for the first time, like read 77 names. Uh, 77 unpronounceable, or hard to pronounce, or difficult to pronounce names. You know, in my last year of of undergrad at the prestigious University of California at San Diego, I registered for a class that didn't really pique my interest or a class I necessarily needed for my major requirements for graduation. I just needed four units to graduate. So Anthropology 101 sounded like an easy A, and just what I needed to boost my GPA and graduate on time. So sometime during the course of this class, I realized there's no easy A without doing the reading. Plus, I came to realize this late in the quarter, like almost at the end. You know, um, I don't know if you've ever read an anthropology book. It's like reading the White Pages. Uh, And again, I apologize if you're an anthropology major, but I just didn't enjoy it very much. You know, it's like reading a a genealogy and uh, and falling asleep as I was reading it. I cannot tell you how many times, how many countless times I fell asleep reading my anthropology book. And as you may have guessed, It was not an easy A. Luke, as the author of the gospel which bears his name, and as a careful historian, lays out in meticulous detail information that perhaps you and I would rather skim over or just skip altogether. Truth be told, I have been guilty of this, skimming over parts of the books of the Bible like I don't know if I should be admitting this, Leviticus and Numbers and the Ark of the Covenant and Exodus 20 and on, there are so many parts of the book that you just kind of skip over. You know, you, you skim over it because there's not much information, kind of like the genealogy we read this morning. Uh, maybe I'm naming too many parts of the Bible that I've skimmed. But Luke's genealogy contains 77 names. Some categorize it as 11 different groups of seven names each, 77 names. That's like reading a whole section out of the white pages and I'm sure there's a whole generation here who are asking the question, what in the world are the white pages? There's lots of names, lots of unpronounceable names, lots of names of people who lived long ago in a land far, far away that seems to have no bearing on me. And Luke goes to great lengths to give us an ancestry, a family tree, taking us back, way back, way, way back. I doubt that Ancestry.com has roots that deep. Most of the names on this list are difficult to pronounce. Mary, did a fantastic job. Most of the names here are unfamiliar, even to the Bible scholar. For you see, nearly half of them don't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. List is long. Most of these names you'll forget as you exit those doors when the service is over. So why a list? And why in the world a sermon on a genealogy? Luke as a careful and meticulous historian includes this genealogy here for a reason. He is the author of the gospel of knowing for sure. These are not just sections to be skimmed or skipped. It is after all just as inspired as your favorite verse or other parts of scripture that contain your favorite stories. Why a genealogy? Why a need for a family tree? Sites like Ancestry.com are intriguing as these DNA ancestry tests help us learn more about ourselves and our family roots. For some of us, it's about discovering our ethnic makeup or family history, And again, the website says up to 10 generations back. We have a friend who took one of these tests right before the pandemic and decided to travel to Sweden to meet new families she had never met, uh, living relatives in other parts of the world. You know, we want to know who we are. We want to know where we come from, right? These are the questions that we ask ourselves. And Luke is making a similar case Luke's desire, as he gives us a genealogy, is that readers of his gospel know who Jesus was. So let's take a look at what a genealogy, tell, genealogy tells us about who Jesus is. So, not only is Luke interested in who Jesus is, but so are the readers of that day. For the Jews of Jesus' day, their identity was of utmost importance. This is how they maintained their identity. They knew their father and their grandfather and their great-grandfather and their great-great-grandfather several generations deep. This is how they knew what line they were a part of. This, is what, this was their identity. This is how they maintained their identity. And so the, for the Jews, they kept careful records of family history. They remembered who their fathers were all the way back to the 12 original tribes of Israel. At first it was passed down orally and then at some point they were written down for posterity. And again the Jews they they knew then and, and thought that gene, genealogies were so important and they paid close attention to questions of genealogy because again it was how land was bought or sold. Genealogical records were regularly consulted to ensure that land belonging to someone or to their family wasn't sold to somebody who didn't belong to that family or that tribe. Genealogy was crucial in in determining whether you were part of the priestly line or the kingly line of Israel. For you see, only a person from the tribe of Levi could become priest. Only someone from the line of David could become a, a king of Israel. So you can see why genealogies were not just a good thing to remember, but essential to life. If I may, a few interesting points, a few interesting tidbits about the genealogy that we look at this morning. For one, Luke's genealogy, it's strange, but Luke's genealogy is different than the one found in Matthew chapter 1. How could it be different, right? It's the same family, but there's two different genealogies. Of the different names that are there, only about 40 are the same, and there's discrepancies with the others. Matthew begins with Abraham, who was the father Abraham, the father of nations in Genesis chapter 12. It starts from Abraham and goes down the generation's line to get to Joseph and then to Jesus. And Luke does quite the opposite. He starts with Jesus, he goes all the way Back, He goes all the way back through David and through Abraham and finally ends up at Adam, the first man on the planet. Matthew includes four women in his list. Luke includes none. Some scholars believe Matthew traces uh, Jesus' natural line and Luke traces the royal line. We don't know with certainty. Because again, as I mentioned, there are nearly half of the names there in the book of Luke that we don't recognize. They're not mentioned in the Old Testament. Some scholars believe that Matthew is tracing Joseph's genealogy and that Luke is tracing Mary's genealogy, the mother and the father of Jesus. We see this with the words and again, it's so funny. And again, when, when I read the scriptures, I think there are some humorous parts to it because as Luke writes this, he, he includes the, the three words, as was supposed. Supposedly, right? I mean, I, Luke, he's this careful historian. I mean, he's this, he has all the details down and he includes these words, as was supposed. It's a funny phrase for a historian, someone who values accuracy and carefulness and certainty, says of the father of Jesus, well, supposedly he was the father of Jesus. Is Luke asking Joseph for a paternity test? Is this a midday talk show? Who is the real father? Well, I believe Luke, he does this intentionally, as he does with everything in the book. He uses these words to validate the virgin birth. And perhaps if Mary was Luke's source for much of the early life of Jesus, a genealogical line from Mary would make sense for Luke. She would tell him stories about Jesus when he was young, about his genealogy from the line of Mary. The virgin birth alone, though, doesn't seem to be enough authentication uh, for the gospel writer. He wants his readers to know with certainty that not only does Joseph come from a royal line, but I love this, but so does Mary. If anyone had an argument for Jesus being the next king of Israel, Right, a a real king, a king with authority, a king with power, a king with some validity. And there's this claim of the virgin birth of Jesus by, by Mary. Then certainly Jesus has to come from not just Joseph's line of David, but also Mary's as well. That's my guess. That's our guess but that Mary too comes from the Davidic line and her son has every right to the throne of David. So Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, which in this genealogy means that Jesus was the supposed son of Joseph, not biologically, but legally. Yes, Jesus was the son of Joseph, but really he was the son of Mary. And Mary's father was, as we read at the end of Luke 3.23, Heli. Not Jacob like the one Matthew gives. And Luke includes this line here in a calculated manner in between the baptism of Jesus, where, which, um, which Brad preached last week, and where Jesus, we hear God uh, from heaven declaring, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And it's sandwiched between this and the other end of that bookend, the onset of Jesus' ministry, beginning with the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And we'll look at that temptation next week. But today, a genealogy. So what does the genealogy tell us about Jesus? Three things. The genealogy of Jesus shows him to be God's promised Savior for the whole world. The genealogy that's recorded in the book of Luke tells us that, again, he is the one we had been waiting for. He is the King of Israel. He is the prophesied Messiah. He is the one who had been prophesied for centuries. He is the one who is the promised Savior for the whole world. Both Matthew and Luke independent of one another, make it clear that Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus, but he was, that he was uniquely conceived in Mary through the Holy Spirit. And the virgin birth allows for Jesus' deity that he was and is and continues to be God, which was clearly established in all of the Gospels. But also, the Lucan account shows that Jesus was fully human, descended from the men listed in this genealogy. He was the son of. Jesus alone as God in human flesh, who is both fully man and fully God, is what uniquely qualifies him to be the, both the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of those from every nation who call upon his name. You see, what Luke is trying to tell us us is that Jesus has roots. He has a family tree. He didn't just drop out of heaven. He didn't just have to walk into the stage of human history by chance. He didn't appear magically. But at the perfect moment in history, because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Jesus has and had a human family. He had a mother and a father and and a history. He's not some fictional character. Like the gods of the Greeks or the gods of the surrounding nations, he was a real person. There's historicity to who Jesus was and is and continues to be. He lived in a real time in a real space. He walked among us. Some argue that Jesus was some fictional character. That he didn't exist, but what the scriptures tell us in this genealogy is that he is the one from whom this, uh, this, this wonderful line of, of Adam and of Abraham and of, and of David who had come to this earth. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. God prepared perfectly every detail of history. He sent his son into the world. There was something that was about to happen. God prepared it perfectly. The Jews themselves knew that the Messiah would come along uh, 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 according to the prophets, according to the prophecies. There was a desire, a hope, a yearning, a deep feeling that, uh, that humanity must, uh, would, would somehow welcome uh, someone who would change the course of history the course of the human race and Jesus possesses all of these proper credentials, the proper roots to be the promised agent of God. He is Abraham's seed. He is of the line of David. He is the son of God. The son of God is also the son of man. And Jesus' family tree qualifies him from both a human and a divine standpoint to bring upon God's salvation. Number two. What's interesting about Luke's account of the genealogy is that he works backwards. Luke Luke begins with uh, Jesus, where Matthew begins with Abraham. And it ends with Jesus. But if you look again at Luke's genealogy and look at how it ends, it ends with Adam. No other genealogy in the scriptures ends this way the son of Adam, the son of God. The son of Adam, the son of God. This statement reveals something about the nature of Adam and his unique relationship to God. If you think about it, he was not born like the others in the human race. He was made by the direct act of creation. God formed him from the dust, he breathed into his nostrils, and he was a living, walking, breathing human being. Technically speaking, yes, he is also God's son. Created in God's image, bearing the family likeness of God, Adam is the only other who we can say is, uh, is God's son or the son of God. The only other who can truly be regarded as this. You know, when we think about genealogies and we think about ancestry, we th- we'd like to think of ourselves that we come from good stock, right? That our ancestors were noble and good, that they did something heroic. I mean, I like to believe that, that they were heroic, that there's something commendable about the line we come from. We like to think that they stood up for what was right. We like to think that they made right decisions, ones we hope we would make today if given the same opportunities? Unfortunately. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's not the point of the genealogy of Jesus. Why a connection to Adam? Why not do what Matthew does? Stop at Abraham. As I mentioned earlier, the connection to Adam Makes Jesus a real human being who existed in the place and time in history, but also one connected to the rest of humanity. Jesus has his place in the human race. He was and is a real person. The connection to Adam marks the beginning of that line, and Adam is the only other who can be regarded as the Son of God. Adam was first. The simplest and most natural way to interpret Genesis chapter 1 is that God created the specific person named Adam. There is a historical Adam who was created on the sixth day of creation. A specific person by the name of Adam. He had a wife named Eve. He had sons of uh, Cain and Abel and Seth and others. And I believe that Luke includes Adam, the first person on the planet, to make a point. In fact, as we look at the line of Jesus, he does not come from good stock. It is a solid line, a long line of fallen sinners. And perhaps that's the point that Luke is trying to make, taking us all the way back to Adam, the first man. And Luke is making this point that again here, Jesus, yes, he comes from a royal line, but if you look at the men whose names appear here, they are sinners, just the same like you and me. We've fallen short and made decisions that were not so good. Yes, given those same opportunities, we made choices that were quite the opposite of commendable and noble The Bible tells us when, we, when, he, when, when Luke lists this long line of, of the generations that precede Jesus, is it takes us all the way back to Adam, who was the first sinner. The first sinner. When Adam stood in that Garden of Eden, he was responsible before God. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul teaches that God deals with the human race under a system known as federation, Uh, again, this uh, federalism, uh, something that uh, says that uh, that one man, that one person represents the whole human race. Now, if I were playing on a football team, uh, the captain would go out and he would call uh, heads or tails. And whatever he calls would be representative of the whole team. And in the same way, when we look at our roots, we look at our ancestry, we look at our history, or our family tree, and it takes us all the way back to the first human that ever lived. We say that Adam committed a sin, and sadly, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 and also in 1 Corinthians 15, that when one man sinned, unfortunately... All sinned. Adam served as a representative head. Through Adam's one trespass affects all those who are in Adam. The technical term is the word imputation. It's a fancy theological word. By what he does, it's imputed to the rest of humanity. When we're born, we're born with a sin nature. We have an inclination a proclivity to sin just like Adam did. You know, I mean, some of us like to believe that uh, many of us or all of us are born good and we make bad decisions, that we're born good and that we sin or we do bad things. But the scriptures tell us quite the opposite, that when we're born, we're born and we're born with a sin nature because of what Adam did on our behalf. It sucks. (laughs) It doesn't seem to be very fair. Why do I get in trouble for what my brother did, right? I mean, I know that was me growing up. But a representative head, an imputation that takes place when, when he sinned and when Adam sinned, all sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So because we are in Adam, again, all those who are in Adam enter into condemnation. That is to say, they are liable to divine justice for divine condemnation, for a punishment for the sin of Adam imputed on us by him. But my friends, we're not off the hook. It's not just because of what he did, but it's because of what you and I do. We have that same proclivity. We have that same wanting and desire to sin and do the exact opposite of what we were created for. You know, yes, he serves as our representative head, but if we were there, we would have made the same choice. Through the sin of one man, the first Adam, death came into the world. This resulted in that when a human being is born, they are born to inherit a sinful nature, a sinful, uh, a sinful nature or a sinful state, without asking for it. Sin is automatically imparted to us at birth because of Adam's sin. Thus, when we are born, we are born into that first Adam. But my friends, here is the good news. Those who belong to Christ are imputed life and righteousness and justification through their faith union with Christ. This is the good news. And if you ask about fairness, this isn't fair, that Christ would die on a cross and his righteousness, I'm sorry, the sins that we commit would be imputed to him on the cross. Why should he, right? Why should Christ have to pay for my sins? Why would he have to die for what I did and what I do? The good news of the gospel is that our sins are imputed to that cross where Jesus died. And even better news than that is when when Christ died as one who knew no sin would become sin so that he would impute to us the righteousness of Christ. It's not fair if you ask me that Christ would take our punishment and that his perfect life would be imputed to you and I on the sole basis of our union with Christ. That's the good news. And the scriptures tell us, and and Paul explains this clearly in Romans chapter 5, that there is a second Adam. There is a last Adam. There is another alternative. There's a new human race that comes into the world. Through the sin of one man, death came into the world. But through the second Adam, those who belong to Christ are imputed life and righteousness and justification. Simply by putting our faith in Christ, his righteousness is automatically imputed to us. And because he obeyed, Christ obeyed all the laws on our behalf. He fulfilled them. God's blessing and life and abundance are automatically given to us. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us as a free gift of God. Not because we try to earn it, or not because we deserve it, and not because we come from this fancy line, but because Christ died on the cross for our sins. My friends, the first Adam sinned, the second Adam committed no sin. Through the first Adam, sin entered the world. Through the second Adam, righteousness entered the world. For the first Adam, sin separated us from God, but the second Adam brings us back into relationship and fellowship and communion with God. Death came to the first Adam and the second Adam, the life giver. In Jesus Christ, all the promises that God made to the sons of Adam have been fulfilled. Jesus is the king who was promised to David. Jesus is that ruler that was promised to Judah. He was the blessing to the nations that God promised to Abraham. And he was the the crusher, the defeater, the victor over Satan of the promise that God gave to Adam. Adam. And Luke shows that Jesus alone is the true son of God. You see, there was only one way, and there's only one way for Adam and his sons to be rescued. There had to be a new beginning, a new Adam, a new humanity. There had to be someone who could once again be called the son of God to redeem the broken sonship of Adam. And it's Jesus. We are part of a much longer line. A much longer genealogical line. One that says, and, and the Apostle John in first, uh, first John chapter 3 tells us that we are sons of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And John says, and so we are. My friends, if Jesus is your Savior and Lord, my friends, you are children, sons and daughters of God.